everybody. Welcome to episode number 56 of the John Riley Project. It's June 12th. It's Wednesday, June 12th, 2019. And hey, we're broadcasting as we always do from the fabulous JRP Podcast Studio here in Poway, California, the city in the country. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Um, Another great episode in store for you. We're going to talk about universal basic income. And this is a real hot topic that's being discussed um, in the, in the context of the presidential, you know, 2020 election cycle. And I just thought this would be a really good one to break down and, and discuss in detail. But, you know, before we get into that, I just want to give you an update on what's going on in my world. Um, we had a great podcast yesterday with Pete Neald and his um, mission across America, his cross-country trip, fulfilling promises he made to his now deceased mother, um, casting ashes in these ash-casting ash ceremonies in various spots around the United States. And Pete shared all the stories of his cross-country trip. It was unbelievable. So I invite you you to, to check out that podcast. Um, we had a great one last week with Rory Herman, um, our local Poway hockey star, and tracing his history through um, youth hockey, junior hockey, playing in the highest amateur league in America, the USHL. He's getting ready now to play college hockey, uh, Division I, um, in the Northeastern United States, and he's still living the dream, hopes to be um, you know, in the NHL at some point. So had some great podcast conversations recently. Um, but, you know, I had a, you know, not this most recent weekend, but the previous weekend, I had a great experience. I drove up to San Francisco and, you know, I'm working on my family history project and I've gotten involved with Ancestry.com and it's almost like a, a puzzle. Like It's like a treasure hunt, just building the links in your chain and your family tree. And I've, I've just become somewhat obsessed with it and it's great. And so I went up to San Francisco last or the previous weekend. You know, I was born in the city, grew up in the Bay Area, and I basically just went and took phot- photographs of all of the current day homes where my ancestors either lived, um, owned, or rented in the city of San Francisco. And it was just an amazing experience, was walking in the neighborhoods where my grandparents and great-grandparents grew up. And this is all in the city of San Francisco in you know Eureka Valley and Noe Valley. It's you know in the Mission District, um, excuse me, not the Mission District, the Castro District, um, you know, which is which at the time back back when I was, you know, an infant, that area was the, you know, essentially an Irish neighborhood because the, the neighborhoods then were were sliced up by ethnicity to a great degree. So it was just interesting to see the Irish community and you know, where people lived. And so I was hiking up and down the hills. Then I met my friend Jack Saturday night and we went out. Um, you know, had some uh, dinner and drinks, and then we went hiking up in Mission, uh, excuse me, the Russian Hill and up Telegraph Hill uh, by Coit Tower. So got in a lot of good workout, visited a lot of historic homes, came back to Poway, uploading all my files onto Ancestry.com, all the photos, and just building my database, building my file. And it's it's wonderful. So if you are doing Ancestry research, I would love to hear from you. I think 
it would be great to have a conversation about some of the things that you've discovered about your family, uh, maybe even some of the resources that you've discovered that have been treasure troves of wonderful information. So, you know, I'm still working at it. I've got my family tree back into the 1700s. I got a long ways to go. So I haven't yet opened up the European databases. That's my next step. And so I'm hoping to plan a trip to Butte, Montana later this year. That's where on, you know, the Riley branch of my family tree, you know, my ancestors came from England and Ireland, and they lived in multiple generations in Butte, Montana before they moved to San Francisco. So looking forward to getting up to Butte later this summer. Um, But what else is going on? you know the the NBA playoffs are fantastic. You know I'm a, a Warriors fan. Of, I you know I went to Warriors games as a kid back in the mid '70s when they had Rick Barry and Nate Thurman and Clifford Ray. You know I was I was an altar boy. You know when I was a young uh, youngster, and the priests every year would take us to. A Warriors game. They, they took all the altar boys, and it was a wonderful event. And by the way, the priests at my parish treated us very well. Um, so, um, uh, but that was what really kind of got me into basketball. And I've been a loyal Warriors fan for decades. And believe me, between 1975 and 2015, it's been a long and a long dry spell for the Golden State Warriors and their fans. So I'm, I'm so happy that they're on this great run right now. And, and then meanwhile, the Toronto Raptors, I'm really excited about Kawhi Leonard. I've been going to San Diego State Aztec basketball games since the Aztecs hired Steve Fisher in 1999. So I was there for a lot of Kawhi's games in his two years on the Mesa. So this NBA Finals for me is like, you know, it's almost like the dream matchup. So it's my childhood team against one of my favorite players in the NBA. So I'm loving that the Warriors are able to pull off a win a couple of nights ago and setting up hopefully a game seven. We're going to have game six, I think. Tomorrow, I think it's going to be, and then eventually a game, hopefully eventually a game seven. So that's what I'm rooting for. You know, Rory was here. We talked hockey. You know, the the Stanley Cup playoffs are going on. And then this is graduation season. So this weekend, we're heading up to San Luis Obispo. My daughter, Shannon, is graduating. So that's going to be a great event. Some family are coming in from out of town. So that's going to be a wonderful weekend. So looking forward to that. So this is just so many great things going on. And I checked my Facebook feed and, you know, just a couple of weeks ago was all the Little League championships and the Poway City Championship just just happened. And so lots of exciting things during this time of the year in June. So hope you're having a great June. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about before we get into the universal basic income, and I think this might tee it up. If you go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, I have all of our episodes posted there, but I also have a journal where I just, I'll write little articles there. It's like a blog. And in the beginning, I talked about why I started this podcast. Sometimes I talk about some of the technology I'm using to build this podcast. And by the way, if you're ever interested in learning about podcasts, contact me. I'll tell you everything I know about how I set this up and and how I got everything organized. Um, But I did a podcast, uh, excuse me, a journal entry a few weeks ago about being braver. And I really think this is something that I'm trying to embrace. You know, when I have a podcast like this, I have a platform and and I have a platform to do a lot of different things. And, And in some cases, you know, when I started this, I just wanted to provide an opportunity for voters to get to know the political candidates here in Poway. And we, we interviewed probably 
two thirds of the candidates, maybe three quarters of the candidates that were running last November for Poway Mayor, Poway City Council or Poway School Board. That was a great way to get this started. But after the political season, you'll see a lot of the podcasts, I'm exploring some topics that I enjoy discussing. In some cases, I'm providing what I'm hoping is a community forum where we can talk about difficult issues and how that relates to people in our community. Um, So I think this podcast can serve that role as well. But in other cases, I, I like to use this as a pod, this podcast as a platform for me to simply share what I believe in. And I, for me, it's very empowering. It's very fulfilling for me to just put myself out there and share. And I think it's all part of being braver. It's easy to not, it's easy to avoid discussion of difficult topics. You know, we're always told, you know, don't talk about politics or religion, but I find that those conversations to me are some of the most fascinating discussions, especially when you can have a dialogue with another person and it can be rational and respectful. And that's what I try to do when I have guests here on the podcast. But still, I I do... I do believe it's important, as Marianne Kim Phelps talked about, and I love this line from her about being an upstander. She talked about that in the context of fighting back against hate. If you see hate, stand up and fight back. But that idea of being an upstander really spans a lot of different categories. And if we see things that are coming forward in in our society, in our culture, in our community that we like or we dislike, you know, stand up and, and speak your mind. But do it respectfully, do it civilly, and do it in a way that isn't necessarily divisive, but do it in a way that you you hope that other people respect what you say, and at the same time, you'll listen and respect what they say. So that's part of the reason why I'm, um, you know, when I, when I decided to have this overarching higher purpose for the for the podcast it's all about life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and that's the framework that gives me that flexibility to talk about difficult discussions you know discussions that impact our life discussions that impact our liberty so when i have my podcast with pete neal yesterday we're talking about how he's living his life talking about how he's pursuing his happiness and it's it's a wonderful story that we discuss with pete the same thing is true with rory a lot of times, though, when we talk about liberty, that's when I tend to th- look at things through maybe a political lens. And I, I, I am, I'm a person that embraces the whole concept of individual liberty, individual rights. And that's typically how I line up politically. And so that brings us to this topic of universal basic income. And so I, I just want to put it out there and talk about it, share my thoughts, and I invite your feedback and your response, um, you know, feel free to engage on social media. And if you'd like to come and sit down with me here on, on the podcast and have a conversation in front of a camera and a microphone, I invite that as well. So what is universal basic income? Well, this is the idea that the government provides money to everybody. And the concept, the way it's being positioned today is as a thousand dollars a month. For every U.S. citizen. I mean, it sounds great. You know, imagine if everybody got a thousand dollars a month. Um, And this is a core part of the candidacy of Andrew Yang. Um, Andrew Yang is a candidate, one of 
20 or more candidates that's running for the Democratic nomination. He recently did a, a two-hour long podcast interview on the Rubin Report. I invite you to check that out. I thought it was an incredible conversation. Um, Andrew Yang, as a candidate, strikes me as a guy that's very intelligent, very human, very authentic. Um, he is absent of a lot of the sound bites and and a lot of the ugliness of politics. He just is speaking his mind, sharing what he believes, putting forward solutions that he believes are going to make a big difference. And I like a lot of his platform. I really do. Uh, the, the, the universal basic income is a core part of what he is about. Um, and he frames it as a freedom dividend. Everybody can have the freedom to start a business, have the freedom to live a more comfortable life, have a freedom to take advantage of different choices in life if everyone had $1,000 a month. And so it's interesting he's positioning it as a freedom dividend. And, you know, here we are, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, so what else? Um, the the This universal basic income, $1,000 a month, is largely justified because of the the coming of artificial intelligence, of robotics. Um, you know, as, as we have more automation in the workforce, there's going to be less jobs. And because there'll be less jobs, people are going to need to have an income. And this is going to be a way to provide that for them. And automation, you know, sometimes we think of robots, you know, on the assembly line, robotics, building things. In other cases, it's just software, software that is automating processes and making the business environment more efficient. And all of that's eliminating jobs. And so that's a great rationale for this $1,000 a month um, check from the government. He, he also says it provides a basic level of pay for everyone. So we all have essentially a, a, um, a floor uh, of, of, a, of a minimal amount of income, and that applies to everyone. And he positions it, you know, within the context of the minimum wage, you know, and the fight for a living wage. And, you know, everyone wants, not everyone, many want to move it to $15 an hour. Well, if you got $1,000 a month, that's the equivalent of about a $6 per hour raise uh, that would be given. So imagine if you're a minimum wage worker and you're earning $9 an hour, well, in California, I think the minimum wage is what, 11 and a half, maybe $12 an hour. So $6 an hour would be a huge bump. And a universal basic income provides that additional amount of, of revenue to the individual that's worth about six bucks an hour. He also sees this, Andrew Yang was positioning this as a way to encourage people to find work. Because in some cases, people that are in the welfare system, they become trapped because let's say they're earning a certain amount of money in um, in handouts from the government and some for, some combination of welfare programs. Well, if they got a job, they might lose those handouts. And in some cases, that job might pay less than those handouts. In other cases, the job may pay only slightly more than the welfare programs. But then a person ends up working 30 or 40 hours a week only to earn slightly more than they're getting for not working at all. So he is positioning this as a way to eliminate some of the welfare programs that exist and therefore provide a justification to encourage people to work. Um, he sees this as a, Andrew Yang sees this as a way to reduce a lot of the regulatory environment, a lot of the welfare programs, because instead of having qualifications for programs, everyone simply just gets a check and it simplifies it. 
And then he goes on to say it should increase entrepreneurship because now people will have a safety net if they start a business and it fails. Well, at least they're still getting a thousand bucks a month. Um, and, he, and he also said it should reduce people's stress and help their mental health, their physical health. It'll make education a lot uh, more effective because there's going to be less stress in the home. So he provided a whole series of rationale for the universal basic income. He even said that it provides a income for people who have jobs that are not normally rewarded in the marketplace. Let's say, for example, they're a caregiver. Um, let's say they're a mom, a stay-at-home mom that's taking care of children or a an adult that is taking care of a parent. Well, those are jobs that are legitimate jobs that require a tremendous amount of work, but they aren't paid at all. So for people like that, or maybe even artists and other categories, this provides them some form of income for the work that they do. So the the pitch on the universal basic income is fabulous. It sounds so good. Everyone's going to get a check. And it's going to help us reduce stress. It's going to encourage entrepreneurship. It's going to give more uh, more income on a monthly basis for those that are struggling. I mean, the list is long. And it's going to be uh, a hedge or a, a counteraction to this coming automation, um, artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, and more robotics in the workplace and the elimination of jobs. And I will agree that some of that sales pitch I like, but there's a lot of it that I don't like. And in my opinion, it sounds so good. But if you really begin peeling the layers of the onion back, it's a problem. And in my opinion, it's very, very immoral in many categories. And I want to break this down. So first of all, in the United States, there are roughly 320 million people. If everyone got a check of $1,000 a month, so everyone would get $12,000 a year times 320 million people, that's $3.84 trillion in spending per year. I hope I did my math right and didn't skip any zeros. Um, But that is more than the current amount of revenue that comes into the federal government every year, which is like $3.64 trillion. That's the 2020 budget estimate. So this is, well, granted, our spending in the federal government is almost a trillion dollars more than that 3.64. But roughly speaking, this is going to require doubling um, of our inc- of, of the income into the government. It's going to require doubling of some form of revenue collection in the form of taxes and fees, and, and we can break that down. So this is an enormous amount of money, an enormous amount of money, and the the Yang Gang, which is Andrew Yang's, uh, you know, really high energy group of supporters, they've broken it down and, and they've, they've rationalized it. But ultimately, this money isn't just invented in thin air. The the thousand dollars a month check, just we don't just make a wish and it appears. It has to come from somewhere, and that's the challenge. So, first of all. A big portion of this is they want to have a value-added tax, or they call it a VAT. This is something that generally doesn't exist in the United States. Um, And there's probably some rare exceptions where it does. But a value-added tax is a tax that is applied to the sale of each component of a product all the way through the supply chain. So you can imagine if someone is 
gathering raw material and they sell it to a manufacturer. There's a tax applied. Then the manufacturer builds the product and sells it to a distributor. A tax is applied. Then the distributor sells it to the retailer. A tax is applied. And then, of course, when the retailer sells it to the end user, a tax is applied. So at every transaction along that supply chain, taxes are involved. And according to um, Andrew Yang's presentation, it would be roughly about 20% that would be added to the costs of goods and many services that we're currently paying for now. So immediately, a big increase in the cost of goods. Um, and so that's going to be a burden on people that have to buy those goods. It's also going to be friction in this in the economy that's going to slow down the purchase of those goods. Now granted people are going to have money to spend, but a lot of it's going to get eaten up in the in the extra costs for the goods that people buy. And consider that the people that are poorest are the ones that'll be impacted the most because they're the ones that to, that the greatest percentage of their income go to those goods. So immediately the value added tax is something that would be a radical transformation of the way that our government collects revenue. And it's also a hidden tax because only the consumer will see the price and maybe the sales tax at the very end of that chain. They won't see all the taxation that happens at each tier. And so because it's an invisible tax, it's less accountable and it's less challengeable. People just begin to accept it. And then suddenly everything is more expensive. I mean, in a lot, at a large degree, it's a little bit like tariffs. You know, tariffs increase the cost of goods. Tariffs are proven to slow down the economy. Tariffs make prices of goods more expensive, and they ultimately harm people and, and typically harm those with the least means um, at the greatest proportional rate. So wh- where, where else is the money going to come from? Well, of course, uh, they're going to tax the rich. And this is a go-to for many progressives. We need to increase taxes on the rich. We need to increase taxes on corporations. And this concerns me greatly. Now, granted, they're talking about increasing taxes on, according to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the tippity top, the very, the ultra gazillionaires and billionaires. But still, when you have a tax like that, that just disproportionately taxes one group of people, especially a minority of people, that's not fair. That's not just. Anytime a massive majority can oppress a tiny minority, it's not right. Now, I know some people are saying, oh, yeah, oppress the rich, big deal. They got plenty of money. Well, you know what? We all have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all should be judged equal under the law. And when we have policies that are meant to penalize some people because, you know, they can they can take the penalty. No big deal. Their life doesn't change. That's still not morally right. It's not morally right to violate the individual rights of some people just because you can just because they only represent one percent of the population. So that's what is strikes me as odd is that Andrew Yang calls it a freedom dividend, but it ultimately violates the individual freedoms of those people that are having their taxes increased. It's almost like the Patriot Act. It's this crazy name that means the opposite of what it actually is. So um, to me, that's that's a problem because th- they would have to increase taxes dramatically. And you know how this game is played. 
that they'll increase taxes, but because of the rich and because corporate powers have such great influence, there'll be all these exceptions and and people will be able to get around those tax rates. And then we're going to end up having this insane, essentially doubling of our federal spending. And it's going to create greater deficits, more debt. Some people are going to pay a big, a big price. Other people are going to be able to get out of it just because of their connections and because of loopholes. So this makes the swamp, even swampier. And I think that's a big problem. What else? I I just, I think it's just, I I get the whole idea of we want to help people rise up and I'm for that. I want to help the poor rise up, help the middle class rise up, but you don't want to do it by tearing other people down. See, to me, that's the wrong approach. We should all rise. We should all have opportunity. But when you have to take from some to give to others, when you have to rob from Peter to pay Paul, to me, that strikes me as very immoral. So imagine it's immoral for us to go take money from our neighbor and steal from him to give to someone else. If we do that on an individual level, we can go to jail. But somehow if people vote and the government does it, then it's okay. To me, it's so incredibly inconsistent. So I just have a big problem with this form of redistribution. Um, and then one part of this that Chang makes his, um, makes his proposal, and I think this is a, an okay angle, is he says we're already spending 500 to $600 billion a year on a lot of these welfare programs, whether it's aid for housing, aid for food, aid for children, and then these people that are on those programs, a lot of them will come off of the program because of the dividend. His proposal is that people would have a choice to take the $1,000 a month or take what they're currently getting from the government. So if they are getting less, let's say they're only getting $600 a month, well, then they just take the $1,000 check and they're $400 a month better off. So according to Yang, we wouldn't be spending $1,000 a month on them. We would only be spending net new 400 more. But still, we're spending a thousand. Let's be real, because that money has to come from somewhere. So, it it still is. It's an interesting angle because a lot of the other proposals that have been presented for universal basic income have been done in a way as a replacement for the welfare state, and we've seen that from a variety of other people. And in some cases, that sounds better because then everyone's treated equally under the law. And instead, we're eliminating all of the the gamesmanship to qualify for those. And I'm going to get into that in a second. But um, still, the you know a good portion of this, according to Yang, will be funded by redirecting some of the money that's already going to welfare programs. And then finally, the other part of the justification is that. If we do this, there's going to be all this spending and a huge surge in the economy and GDP is going to go up and we're going to have all this new revenue that's going to come into the federal government. Yeah, there'll there'll, there'll be some of that. That's no doubt. But I'm always cautious when people start forecasting that because those forecasts beyond a year are really tenuous because they're always manipulating and changing the system and, you know, the economy fluctuates. So, Can we depend on that as a source of a significant amount of income? I mean, if we go into a serious recession, and a lot of people are predicting that, well, people are still going to be demanding 1000 bucks a month, 
but the revenue will go down. So it doesn't pay for itself when the economy is it was either flat or not or going in or actually being reduced. Or even if it's only growing at a very, very slow rate, it's still not going to cover it. So it's uh, – I again, all of this feels good. But when you start peeling back the layers of this, it begins to break down. And it's never going to be enough. I mean let's be real. If you provide $1,000 a month for people, then next year they're going to want more. They're going to want 1200 or 1500 People will always demand more, and there will always be the politicians that will play that game and promise them more. And then that will require them to take more from others. And it makes this wealth redistribution even more egregious, more, more complicated, more, in, in my opinion, immoral and more swampy because you're going to have all these bureaucrats manipulating and managing the system. And the other angle to this is interesting because part of it is, is that the universal basic income is intended to be a minimum baseline of funding so we could all essentially survive. But let's be real. Where can you live in America on $1,000 a month? I mean, especially in California, you can't even rent a room in a lot of apartments for $1,000 a month. So it, it's, it, it's never going to be enough. And by the way, it, it, part of the angle to this is, is remember, um, Yang said, if we provide $1,000 a month to people, help them escape the trap of poverty because of the way the government welfare programs are set up, and it will encourage people to get a job. But the whole argument is, is that with automation coming, there's going to be less jobs. So it seems that the people that are proposing the universal basic income are kind of playing both sides. If we're going to encourage people to work or are there not going to be jobs so we can't encourage them to work. So you see the the dichotomy there. Um, so in the end, it's. It, it it just doesn't make sense in my opinion. Now, I'll give you one scenario where it would make sense is that if it right off the top was a substitute for the entire welfare system. Now, again, some people have proposed this, um, you know, some people that are are progressive, some that are conservative, some that are more liberty minded have proposed various forms of universal basic income over the last, you know, four or five decades in many cases, they've been proposed as an immediate swap out for all of the welfare programs. And if it were done on that basis and with the agreement that over time it would ratchet down, that the checks would be less and less, that would make sense to me. And that would definitely encourage more work and it would be more consistent with individual rights. But we know that's not the case. What's going to happen will be the opposite. It will continue to grow. And that that freedom dividend of $1,000 a month will soon be 2000 soon be 3000 as this continues to grow. So in many ways, it's I see this as just another repackaging of any number of different redistribution schemes that have been brought forward. But let's go back to the other fundamental premise of this, is that artificial intelligence is going to greatly reduce jobs. Automation, we're going to have driverless cars, driverless truck drivers. Millions of truck drivers are going to be out of work because of the um, upcoming automation of driverless vehicles. Well, that's a legitimate concern. That's fair. I mean, heck, my car that I, I just got a couple of months ago, I have a Hyundai Kona. 
it has the sensors that are so good that I can be on the freeway and I could take my hands off the wheel and it will sense the lanes and it will steer the car for me. It's incredible how good the sensors are getting. And we know they're going to get better. So the whole notion of driverless cars, that's a real deal. That's definitely coming. But the economy still grows. The economy expands. So it's almost like the Luddites. And if you look back in history in the 19th century in England, when they built the automation for the machinery that did, I think it was the creation of fabric or they were sewing machines. I think there were looms. So I think that's what creates fabric. And you know, people were rioting in the streets that there was going to be this automation was going to put people out of work and there'll be less jobs. And automation always does put some people out of work. That's obvious. But always more jobs are created. That's what always happens. I mean, right now we have more automation than we've ever had. There's automation in manufacturing, automation in farming. There's automation. There's office automation. I mean, we have automation everywhere. But still, we have more jobs than we've ever had. So in many ways, automation creates more jobs. Automation essentially frees up the the human mind, frees up capital to be put to better uses. So routine, rote work that, you know, essentially redundant work that can be programmed Um, can be automated, no doubt about it. But then it's going to allow us to be more, it's going to free up the human mind, free up capital to be more innovative and to create new industries. So, I mean, a classic example is, you know, the the case of the invention of the automobile. So what was that? That's probably a hundred years ago, maybe a little over a hundred years ago. And Obviously, that the automobile is automation, <laughs> automobile automation. That's automated transportation. But with with that, people were put out of work. You know, the classic horse and buggy people were put out of work. The stagecoach people were put out of work. So all of this, the, certain people lost their job as a result of the creation of the automobile. But think about how much has been created it's because of the of the automobile. Not only do we have all these higher forms of transportation, think about trucking. Um, think about, you know, taxis and Uber and Lyft and buses and, heck, double-decker tour buses. So immediately the transportation has created a whole industry in and of itself. But that transportation and the advances that existed have enabled other industries to grow dramatically. So think about all the businesses, manufacturers, distributors, and retailers that have seen their businesses grow because of the automation of transportation. So the point is, is that as these, as automation kicks into gear, we're going to see more industries created. Industries that we've never even thought of are going to come forward and we're going to see a a huge surge of jobs in those categories. We're already seeing that now. I mean, think about the internet and all the technology around the internet, internet of things, wearable technology, biotech, tourism, wind energy, solar energy, education technology, mobile apps, electric vehicles, the advances in battery technology. There's going to be constant innovation, constant creation of new jobs. So automation will make the system more efficient, but it's that efficiency is what frees up the, the mind to think and for R&D people to be creative and entrepreneurs to be creative and to create new industries, new products and new jobs. And that's what's always happened. That's what will continue to happen. Um, 
But yes, some people are going to be displaced. They always are. And so that's where it comes down to, you know, people have to take self-ownership of their lives. This is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Owning your life, having a strategy for your life, building skills, finding mentors, setting goals. If you're in a job that can be easily automated, you need to make an adjustment and maybe change careers if you see it coming. I know a guy that lives here in San Diego that was a was an RPG programmer, and he saw those jobs slowly being outsourced to India. So what did he do? Did he try to just keep digging his hill, heels in that one skill set he had? No. He went and built more skills. He went to school, and now he's an x-ray technician working in the medical industry. And he's going to have fantastic job security moving forward. I mean, the whole healthcare industry is booming because all the baby boomers are getting older. So he made a strategic decision about his career. He took ownership of his career of his life. We need to see more people doing that and making those adjustments. I mean, here, look at me. I'm, I started in sales and doing marketing. Now I'm doing a podcast of all things. So make those adjustments. We need to have people take that kind of self-ownership. Okay. One more, let's talk. I want to talk about one other person in this whole equation, and that's Milton Friedman. For those of you who don't know him, he is a Nobel Prize winning economist. He passed away, I think about 15 years ago. He's a guy that I respect greatly. He's a big free market guy, a big low tax, low regulation guy. And if, if you're ever interested, just Google him on YouTube. And he's got all series of lectures and TV shows. And I just think he's terrific. But um, he proposed a negative income tax. And people will often say, well, heck, we, universal basic income, it's consistent with liberty minded people. After all, Milton Friedman proposed a, a, a version of a universal basic income. And you're right, you know what? He did. And he called it the negative income tax. And it was essentially a similar model where people had some form of a guaranteed um, income, but it had more of a gradual slope to it. Um, where right now, you know, people get, according to this plan, a thousand bucks a month, no matter what. Well, his was, a th- you know, it started at a higher amount, but could gradually be less coming from the government, depending on how much you earned. And he did it through an incentive structure using the tax system as a model. And he called it a negative income tax. And I'd encourage you, if you want to check it out, there's a great YouTube um, piece about it um, on the show Firing Line with William F. Buckley. This is like in 19, I think, 68. So his proposal is interesting. Um, but really, if you know what Milton Friedman is all about, this was – he's an economist. He – at the time in the late 60s, amazingly, the House of Representatives had had considered and voted on a universal basic income. And it was an idea that was gaining momentum in the 60s. And, and it never ended up passing in the Senate. But Friedman, the economist, the academic – he tried to look at it from his own perspective to see if he could create a model that was similar. But for him, it was never the utopian version of what he wanted. It was just, in, for him, a sort of academic exercise to see if there was a, a better way to do a universal basic income. But he definitely used it as a complete swap out of the entire welfare system. Andrew Yang does not propose that. Andrew Yang will keep a great deal of the current welfare system that exists in the government today because he wants to give people that choice that where they can take the $1,000 check or what comes from the government, whichever is greater, and it's up to them. So 
I'd encourage you to take a look at at Milton Friedman's negative income tax proposal because I think it's interesting, especially within the discussion of the universal basic income. Um, but still, his that proposal is still a tax-based system, still a redistribution system, and really, in my, in my opinion, not consistent with his ultimate belief of free markets, low taxes, and low regulations. But it does; it is worthy of being, being brought into the conversation. So what's the better solution? And I'm going to get to this in some, some of my uh, future podcasts. But ultimately, we have to think. As individuals, we need to think about what is my strategy. First question is, can artificial intelligence or robotics replace my job? If the answer is yes, then you need to be strategizing. You need to be thinking of your options. Um, this comes down to self-ownership. It comes down to career strategy. And, and it really, in my opinion, the solution to a great, for a great many people, not for everybody, but for a great deal of people is embracing entrepreneurism. And we're going to get to that in a future podcast. The internet and everything that's available today makes entrepreneurism so much more viable for the average everyday individual. And we're going to break, break that down and explore that. But we have to, in my opinion, because we all have the individual rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we cannot enact solutions that help the many at the expense of the few. We cannot violate some people's rights in order to reward other people. And I think that's a dangerous position. And that's in many ways why I have trouble with the universal basic income. But I will say this. I think Andrew Yang is a really good candidate. Um, I think if you look on his website, he has actually called out proposal policy proposals for a laundry list of um, issues. He's very brave. He, and I talked about this in the podcast, be braver. He is being brave. He is saying things and doing things that average politicians will not do. And a lot of his policy proposals are very, very good. And I strongly support them. But there are a few in there that I dislike. Universal basic income is, is one of those. So I invite you to reach out. Join me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at John Riley Project. Um, I even have a special insiders group, Facebook group, that is invitation only, or you can request to join permission. Just got to answer a few questions. I approve everybody. Find me there, the John Riley Project Insiders Group. I have bonus content when I'm out on the road. I do videos. You can check that out. I invite your conversation on this issue of universal basic income. You can also catch me as John Riley Poway on Twitter and on Instagram. And so I invite you to engage in the conversation. If you would like to come on the podcast and discuss this with me, with me, I would enjoy that. If you have a guest you'd like to recommend to come on the podcast to discuss this, I would also enjoy that. Because like I said, I think this podcast can serve as a community forum and we can have these kind of long form, sometimes difficult conversations, but do it in a respectful, civil environment where we are active listeners and we work our way through these issues. We may have differences, but we'll find ways to have common ground. And that's what I encourage. So um, I think I'm going to wrap it up here and I'm going to wrap this up with, well, first of all, I want to say, if you, if you enjoy what you're listening to, you enjoy what you're watching, I love your support. A great way you can support me is just by subscribing to the YouTube channel. Right below the video, there's a little red button to subscribe. If you're listening on 
iTunes, which is now actually going to be called Apple Podcasts. If you're there, if you're on Google Podcasts or Stitcher or or Spotify, leave a review. You can leave up to five stars. You can write a paragraph, a sentence. Any kind of a review is always really helpful. And you can share this with a friend. So I encourage you to do that. But I want to thank you. If you've watched this entire podcast episode, thank you very much. Um, and I'm going to sign off with this quote, and I think this is a great one. And And this is all part of being braver. And it's from Walt Disney. And he said, all our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. So I'll leave you with that. This is John Riley, the John Riley Project. This is episode 56. Thank you very much for watching and have a great day. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.